Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode number 21 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Latini Creative Solutions. They have over 20 years of experience in design, print, and marketing, specializing in creative solutions that capture your voice and deliver your message. From supporting and energizing your already established brand to developing your company's identity and marketing campaigns, Latini Creative Solutions provides design that is thoughtful, focused, and creatively executed. They can handle whatever you throw at them. And trust me, I've been throwing a lot at them. Launching the podcast, cocktails in the war room, buildingmistresscarry.com, and filling up the Mistress Carrie online store, which is coming soon. So if you could use some help getting your company ready for the holidays, log on to latinicreative.com. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by the Main Hair Lounge. If you've listened to me for over 22 years, you know. People have called me the purple-haired bitch. Well, there's a reason. My hair's bright purple. And I get asked about it all the time. And that's because Linda at the Main Hair Lounge is amazing. If you want to do cool stuff to your hair, you got to make sure you do it right. And if you want to just be looking good for a special occasion or maybe a job interview or your first day at a new gig, well, you want to make sure you're making the best impression. And that means having rockin' hair. So go and see Linda at the Main Hair Lounge. You can find the Main Hair Lounge on Facebook and Instagram with tons of pics. Or log on to MainHairLounge.com. That's M-A-N-E. And they're conveniently located right on Route 9 in Framingham. Now, before we get going with this week's episode, I want to say hello and send some love out to Chris, Tim, Lindsay, and Christina. They are the latest recipients of a Mistress Carrie backstage pass. And if you don't know what that is, just go to patreon.com slash Mistress Carrie and find out. A Mistress Carrie backstage pass is exactly that. It gives you backstage access to everything that I got going on. Wednesday, the goth pug, MCHQ, the podcast, cocktails in the war room, and of course, just my crazy life out from behind the microphone. Plus, when mistresscarrie.com launches, you'll get discounted merchandise in the online store. And a Mistress Carrie backstage pass makes a great gift for the holidays for that person who has everything. They just need a little extra Mistress Carrie in their life. So get a Mistress Carrie backstage pass now. Just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Mistress Carrie. Okay, episode 21 is a follow-up to something that we did together earlier this year. When Cocktails in the War Room launched on March 14th, we got together every night at 8.30 for 81 nights in a row. And then it became a weekly show, which you can check out on my Facebook page live every Tuesday night at 8.30. And everyone in the war room in the height of the coronavirus lockdown wanted to do something good, something to help the community. And that's why we designed the Cocktails in the War Room t-shirts. They were designed by Latini Creative Solutions. They were produced by my friend Brian up at Whirlwind Productions in Derry, New Hampshire. And all of the profits of the sale of the shirts got donated to the Massachusetts Military Support Foundation for their Food for Vets program. They're making sure that our veterans that are in need of food assistance get the food that they need and the nutrition that they need to stay healthy. It's an amazing program. So I thought this week for episode 21 of the Mistress Carrie podcast, I'd introduce you to the amazing people that run the Massachusetts Military Support Foundation. 
Not only will you hear about the Food for Vets program, but you'll hear about all of the other programs that they have going on, especially coming up for the holidays. And you'll hear from one of the veterans that they've helped. So for episode number 21, allow me to introduce you to Don Cox and Barbara Foley from the Massachusetts Military Support Foundation and U.S. Army veteran Paul Rifkin. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Her hair is so lovely. Pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. This is Marilyn Manson, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to, you have the privilege of listening to. Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I think we're good. We're Sounds here. Good. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to MCHQ. Thank you. How are you? Hold on. I'm going to turn your mic up a little bit because your voice is a little soft. Thank you. Thank you guys for coming. It's nice to have you in my studio. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Normally, I am uh, recording everybody remotely because of everything that's gone on with um, COVID-19. And so I haven't been able to have a lot of conversations where I'm actually looking at people in person. And so I'm glad that you made the trip out and you're hanging out in my new studio. So thank you very much for the drive. Thanks for having us. Uh, so the first thing I want to do is I want to give you guys all a chance to introduce yourselves and talk about um, what you do. So I guess I should start with you, Don. Ladies first. Oh, ladies. The chivalry is not done. Not it's, it's not died yet. Um, my name is Barbara Foley, and I work with the Mass Military Support Foundation and USA for Vets Foundation in the capacity of development and marketing. I jo- recently joined um, in September. I began as a volunteer in April packing food boxes um, because the need was so great across the state. Um, And I've learned a lot, and I'm excited to be a part of the organization because the need is so great, and it's been a real eye-opener for me, the need among veterans and active-duty military, that they just don't have the resources that they need really to, to live full lives. And I think that identifying the ones who really need us the most is really the probably our priority. Don, the man with the plan. I'm going to refer to my senior partner over here on my right, Mr. (laughs) Paul Rifkin. Hi, I'm Paul Rifkin. I live on Cape Cod. I live live in Mashpee. And I've known Don Cox for many, many years now. And um, we kind of lost touch with each other for a while, but some magic happened to bring us back together. And it's, it's uh, been a wonderful thing for my life 
uh, it's brought me back to life in a lot of ways that I'm deeply grateful for. Um, I'm, I feel I'm working now volunteering with a, with a organization that is doing the most important work that I'm aware of. And I started, um, volunteering with, uh, Cape Cod, um, military support, uh, back in uh, April. And, um, I was, I just felt honored to be part of the organization, watching the gratitude of so many families being taken care of and often going home and crying because it moved me so much. Um, as things went along, Donnie, one of the things that makes Don so powerful, um, you mentioned earlier, Carrie, that uh, you can kind of run the world from down here in this studio. Well, while that's going on, Donnie is kind of running the world <laughs> out there. I've seen the facility. Don does run the world. <laughs> so um, one of the th one of Don's strengths, and are, and there are many, is um, making use of whatever it is, whether it's inanimate, meaning food in a box, or whether it's semi-animate, like a 78-year-old man who has certain skill sets, and Donnie can take those skill sets and suggest that you employ them uh, for the organization, and he has a way of convincing. I know he convinced me uh, pretty easily, and I've seen him subsequently have power over so many people because he infects you with the enthusiasm for what we're doing. And it make, he makes you feel that this thing is so worthwhile that why be wasting your time with anything else? Um, so I've just been so appreciative to be, uh, to have jumped in and offered what I, what I can do, which is, photography and writing and editing and thinking of new projects. And I've, I've just, I feel like I was asleep before I became involved here. I'm retired now from the restaurant business and, uh, and my life is, my, my life is kick ass full time <laughs> now. Well, Don, you and I, so let's just start at the beginning because there's so much to talk about. So as I tell everybody, Carrie, this isn't about me. This is about them. And the most important thing about them is that we answer the bell. Many of these people raised their right hand and made us safe in this country. And they haven't been taken care of properly by our government and by people who are responsible to take care of them. I was affected Nine years ago, my dad passed away, and on the day my dad died, he told me a story of what he did for veterans his entire life, and I never knew it. And that story affected me and drove me to the person that I am today in this business. We started an organization seven years ago that was an organization to help veterans and military families on Cape Cod. 
It had a mission of Joint Base Cape Cod, which at the time was called the Mass Military Reservation. Uh, Governor Patrick changed it over to the Joint Base Cape Cod, and we were able to affect the lives of active-duty military families and some veterans on the Cape. And during that time, we were we built a reputation of of making sure that people needs were answered and that that was done with dignity and respect. And that has been our motto. That's what's carried us for the last seven years. And we grew from a little organization on the Cape to a statewide organization of Massachusetts and now a regional organization covering all of New England through USA for Vets. And the reason we've been successful is those programs have been able to go into the homes and answer the needs of people that aren't being taken care of by others. We've had a tremendous amount of sponsors who have joined us in our fight for veterans. We've had over, uh, I believe we have over 700 volunteers now that volunteer on a whatever as-needed basis when we need them. We started out with uh, food insecurity being our first priority. Seven years ago, when food insecurity was our first priority, we were dealing with Coast Guard families that were stationed on Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard that were using their credit cards to buy food because they didn't make enough money to live in an expensive place like Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket. So what they would do to feed their families was they would take their debit cards and their uh, credit cards and they'd go to the local supermarket, buy food, and it came to our attention. So what we did was we started with a food drive where we raised $5,000. We went to Stop and Shop, which was the only mutual supermarket on both islands. We bought $5,000 worth of $50 gift cards. And we gave them to the chaplain to give out to the families as needed. Over six years, that program grew from $5,000 to $53,000. And we realized that we were never going to be able to service the needs of all the people in Massachusetts with the food insecurity that our military and veterans experience by doing that. So we opened an empowerment center. The empowerment center was a place where people could go and get whatever was needed as to take care of their family. In the case of a young soldier or a, a young veteran, there was diapers, baby clothes, food, over-the-counter medications for both the parents and the children. And there was clothing there. In the case of an older veteran, there was every kind of food that we could get donated, fresh breads daily that came from supermarkets that we would go out and ask to assist us. And that food insecurity problem went on for about a year until the government shutdown occurred in 2018, 2019. And when the government shut down and our Coast Guard families weren't getting paid, we opened seven pop-up centers across the country, across New England, not across the country, across New England. And those pop-up centers fed Coast Guard families 12,000 in number, and fed them for 45 days when they weren't getting paychecks. Wow. And when that ended and they went back to work and they got their paychecks and we shut down the pop-up centers, we had an after-action meeting with all the people involved, and we said, this isn't going to be the last time this happens, and we need to be prepared for the next time it happens so that we can do it better, more efficiently, and affect whoever else is involved. So we uh, went back to the drawing board and we designed a mobile empowerment center 
that we could take and run across New England and be able to provide those services to whatever families needed it in the military and veterans. And lo and behold, in March of 2020, a pandemic named COVID hit the United States, and we were built for that disaster. We mobilized with a program called Food for Vets. We started out of our little warehouse on Cape Cod where we had originated this whole thing. We call it our incubator. We figured out how to pack food for vets. And what we did was when we built it, we built it so that people who were vulnerable at the time were in their 60s, over 60% of the people we served. They had a quarantine for two weeks to make sure that the virus didn't affect them or their families. So we packed three meals a day for two people, 14 days worth of food into a box, and the first Food for Vets boxes rolled off the line on March 23rd in a little warehouse in Buzzards Bay, Massachusetts, and were distributed across the Cape. And the feedback came back that it was a great program. We tweaked it a little bit. We had uh, Home Base came in and wrote a uh, cookbook for us so that we could take a lot of the shelf-stable foods and provide different nutritional meals for people. Uh, the program rolled, and uh, we just finished. Uh, last week, we figured that we have served 5 million meals throughout New England with the Food for Vets program since April. Wow. And I you were a big part of it. You helped. You were one of the people that that came to us when it was going on. You heard about it. I don't remember how you heard about it, but you called and you said you were going to help with the fundraising. And this this was undertaken completely from April until June, July, before we had any assistance from anybody. We underwrote this entire program. Well, that was, you know, for anybody that's listening to this episode of the podcast, there's a couple things with everything that you're talking about. Um, first of all, if you're listening outside of New England, um, this problem, this food assistance need is not exclusive to New England. So if you're listening anywhere else in the United States, um, this problem is everywhere. And your program can be used as a blueprint for other people to be able to help solve this problem nationally. I think the biggest thing that people are going to be surprised about, and, and it's something that I want to talk about right away, is how the hell can someone be actively serving in the U.S. military or a veteran of the U.S. military and not have the resources to be able to feed themselves and their families? How, how does that happen, and why is this need even there, and why isn't it being fixed? Well, the need is there very simply. Uh, if anyone knows anything about the military, there is pay grades that start at E1, which is the lowest grade, and go up to E9, which is the highest grade. Somebody that's in the middle, a sergeant or below, is uh, making somewhere between forty and $50,000. They're living in an environment where, you know, rent, fuel, insurance, all of that is not covered by their government payroll. So they have to pay those expenses by themselves. You throw a couple of kids into the mix in today's cost of living, and it doesn't take a speed bump to knock you off your monthly budget. And once you get off your monthly budget, it spirals out of control. It's been going on for years, and it hasn't been addressed. And the worst part is not only does it go on with active duty, but veterans experience it. You know, we take people 
and we bring them into the military, and from the day they go to boot camp until the day we discharge them, we teach them to think, act, and live as a unit. They have a common goal to achieve the success. And the day we turn them loose from active duty and put them back in a civilian life, we discharge them and we send them on the way by themselves. And there is a big problem in the way that those people readjust to civilian life. So we've got the active duty on one side that's having a food insecurity problem and veterans on the other side that's having the, the security problem. We're in the middle, and we're just trying to answer the wants and needs of those people. There's a number of organizations out there beside us that try and do this, but veterans are very, very apprehensive in taking assistance from anybody. We train them to think, act, and, and, and perform as a unit and survive at all costs. So for them to admit that they have a failure or they need help with food assistance or job assistance or whatever the program is, that is the obstacle that's the hardest to overcome. And we've worked for seven years to understand how to attack, how to attack that problem and solve it. When I started Cocktails in the War Room um, back on March 14th, I call it my happy accident, um, the show was nightly at that time. It's now every Tuesday night at 8.30 on my Facebook page. But at the time when the pandemic really hit, um, I was on every night. And one of the things that I would always look for is resources and places that I could send people that were having difficulties. And I've done so much work with the military and veterans community over the years. I heard about you and your mission because... I had started to see some of my friends on Facebook talking about how they had gotten the word because they were down on the Cape um, and that they were starting to pack these food boxes. And then what really propelled me to want to get involved was you started opening up multiple distribution centers and I started seeing this massive facility that you had centered around Gillette Stadium and I was like, there has got to be a way for people like myself who feel isolated in their home and are not able to go. And I mean, everybody was just kind of stuck at home feeling helpless. And so it was, okay, well, how can we help from home? How can all of us who are all separated, I can't have a fundraiser at a bar. I can't have a big event because of COVID. How can we mobilize everyone in a way to be able to help uh, in one specific mission and have us do it all when we can't be together? So that's how we came up with the Cocktails in the War Room t-shirts. And I had to hunt you down to, to get into contact with you. And I was like, hey, if I do this, can I give you all the money? <laughs> and you were like... Who are you and why do you want to give me money? And that is and how. the answer is yes. Yes, the, the, the yes. answer is yes. We'll take your money. And so um, we sold just under 800 cocktails in the war room t-shirts. Part of the mission of the t-shirt sale was to help local businesses as well. So we were able to help the company that designed the shirts. We were able to help the company that produced the shirts. We bought American-made cotton t-shirts so we were able to help the manufacturing we shipped them through the post office so we were helping the post office employees 
And all of the money that was left over, all of the profits, we brought to you. And in order for me to present you with that $5,600 check, you invited me to come down and were insistent that I see your facility. And so I want you to talk about the expansion from the Cape, developing these distribution hubs, and how you ended up partnered with the Kraft family at Gillette. Um, The Kraft family has been partnered with us for, I would say, over four years. Um, We have another program, Codes for Vets, which we'll talk about in another episode. But uh, when we started Food for Vets, I reached out to Donna Spigarella, who works for the Crafts. She's a community relations person. And we were trying to find somebody to help us secure boxes. Kraft family owns Rand Whitney. We called and they had... Uh, For anybody that doesn't know, that's how the Crafts afforded the Patriots. (laughs) They were in the cardboard box business. That's how the family made their money. So we had uh, had been given a gift from Ocean State Job Lot, who's one of our big sponsors. They had a program where they had a bunch of surplus boxes that they had that they were willing to donate. And the first food for vet boxes that came off the line said Ocean State Job Lot on them. And we had a sticker made that we ran off in copy machines in everybody's house to put on the boxes to say food for vets. And uh, that's how the program started. When we got involved with the crafts, they produced uh, 50,000 boxes for us and delivered them to us at no charge. It was a donation to help us get started with food for vets. They saw the program. They actually came to the Cape and helped pack, and they saw the volume that we were packing in a 6,000-square-foot warehouse. And as the COVID problem grew, uh, we needed more space, and they had a building up at Gillette that they uh, invited us to use. And uh, the building at Gillette was uh, uh, 150,000 square feet, and I remember the day I walked in there, I was driven in there and showed the building and asked, will this work for you? And I was like, how to work? We're coming out of 6,000 square feet. I only need a small small portion of this. And lo and behold, I started dialing for donors for food and donors for uh, other things to do for the Food for Vets program. And all of a sudden, tractor trailers started appearing. Uh, we had partners with the great, a partnership with the Greater Boston Food Bank that helped us uh, secure self-stable products. We had... Uh, we had, we had a, all kinds of problems when the pandemic really hit sourcing foods. There was a period where there was no pasta available. Somebody uh, reached out to one of the pasta companies that knew a pasta company, and we had two tractor-trailer loads of pasta show up at the warehouse, which we needed a place to bag, and the crafts had an empty store at Gillette, and they gave us a, uh, a clean, empty store with everybody in uh, proper PPEP equipment and gloves and hairnets and everything else. And we bagged 53,000 pounds of pasta into one-pound bags that we were able to give out when there was no pasta available in the city of Boston. So the program just kind of manifested itself like that and expanded. And uh, But I'm going to interrupt you just for a moment, Don. Yep. You um, were a pasta packer when I met you. I, I did <laughs> pack pasta. Um I think that your 
you're not including the, your, the, how your expertise in the food supply chain, that knowledge that you brought to the whole entire process, I don't think you would have, the program would have succeeded at the level that it did without that expertise being employed for that program. And then the creation of the distribution net, network that grew and grew and the pop-up sites, I don't think without that knowledge, it could have been created and developed so quickly I, to the level that it was. I, I guess that the, the experience that I had, I, I spent my entire career, professional career in the hotel business, and thankfully the Sheraton Corporation taught me a lot about food. I had a, a, a fabulous career with them. I was uh, a manager with Sheraton Hotel Chain where I had the connections through fresh food, frozen food, and canned food to work on uh, a national program with them. And those sources now are second and third generation. I'm dealing with guys that in the 80s when I was in my heyday with Sheraton, their fathers and grandfathers were selling us food. So today when the pandemic hit, I was able to use those sources and resources to get to the bottom of being able to supply this much food for the uh, Food for Vets program. Well, I think that's an important point because you're not a veteran yourself, I went in the Marine Corps right out of high school. You did? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so so that's what I want to talk about, Don. So I want you to tell me your story about going into the Marine Corps. What, when did you go in? What year? 1972. So that's the year I was born. Okay. So you went into the Marine Corps. Let me and- tell you how I got in the Marine Corps. <laughs> yes, because every <laughs> I veteran- I was a fourth generation Marine. Really? Yes. So that was going to be one of the things. It, it seems to be a pattern with military service that it runs in the family. Well, I had a father who was 6'3 and weighed about 290 pounds, who was a police officer, a deputy chief, and, and, and was in Dedham. And I was one of those kids who was either in trouble for being the son of a police officer because whoever got caught doing whatever they got caught doing, blame me for squealing on him. And for whatever stupid move I made as a kid growing up, or as my father used to call it, knucklehead move, uh, he would be embarrassed and mortified. And I made a mistake as a, a senior going into my senior year in high school. And I had two choices. I was going to reform school or I was going to sign up to go in the Marine Corps. And I signed up to go in the Marine Corps. I believe it was October of my senior year. Uh, I graduated on Thursday night, and I ended up at uh, MCID San Diego, California, I believe Saturday morning about 6 o'clock. Wow. And got the traditional head shave, and off to boot camp I went. Um, I had a great experience in the service. I learned a lot from the people I, I went through with, and I, I think that, after I was done with my service, I came home and I had a great career with Sheraton Hotels. And everything I learned while I was there, I, I, I applied to my career and it was what I apply to my life today. So I, I thank my learning experience for what I had when I was there. I think it's important to realize that um, this program was successful because of all those experiences in life. And the Sheraton experiences led to the ability to source food. The uh, pop-up situations that we had came from being able to deal with emergencies. And we, I think, have to thank the government shutdown 
for the experience that we had in these pop-ups. Because what we learned through the Coast Guard shutdown, uh, we had the sources for food, but we had a hard time getting it to where we needed to get it. And especially across New England, it was uh, that experience that made Food for Vets the success it is today. I think that uh, when you look back and you realize that we served 5 million meals now in six months, that's that's a number that is just... It's astronomical. Nobody would, would have yeah. ever considered it or believed it if he hadn't experienced it. We met Barbara because of the the things that occurred during this shutdown. And Barbara's become a big part of this organization. There was a woman... There is a woman that, that runs the Cape Forest, Donna Baldwin, who is the president of Cape Cod. She was the woman that was sitting there doing the books and writing the checks when I was ordering food like I was Rockefeller, <laughs> and we had no idea where the next check was coming in to balance the checkbook. You had no idea that a purple-haired, crazy person in her war room selling T-shirts could call you and offer you some money. But that's how, that's how it works, right. though. It worked that it way. It has to and, work and, that and, way. And right. The, the thing that was amazing was that we were able to get donations. We were able to get people to give us pasta. The crafts gave us boxes. Ocean State Job Lot opened up their warehouse to us. There was a time where I couldn't get a jar of peanut butter. Well, you can't get 84 nutritional meals into a box if you don't have the right proteins and the right carbohydrates. Well, and that's important. Else. That's an important point. So you're not just stuffing boxes with ramen noodles. No. You you worked with dietitians yes. and you worked with organizations to make sure that you were not just donating sustenance, but that you were donating nutrition. Well, what we did was we figured out what we could get that was shelf stable. And we called Bill Davidson and Jack Hammond at Home Base, who are partners of ours, who and are stood by wonderful. us since the the day that we met. And uh, I get I drove Bill crazy. I was like, "Here's the ingredients I need to get." <laughs> and they took their dietitians and they wrote the cookbook that's online. And once we got that for a base, we we might have tweaked it a little. The beans might have changed, or the the peanut butter might have changed, or the 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 tuna fish and the chicken might have changed. But we maintain that nutritional value to be able to provide substantial meals in a shelf-stable environment. And Especially I, important for people, for 60% of the people we were serving at the time or are serving are 60 years old, in 60 years of age and older. So that nutrition is really important for them. Right. And the, the other thing that happened that we didn't anticipate was uh, with the restaurants being closed, there was such an abundance of food in Boston and those connections came home to roost again. We had Cisco Foods. We had Amazon. We had uh, uh, three or four uh, grocery chains that had food that they could not use because people weren't going out and shopping. And it was fresh food. So we, Mr. Kraft, once again, take the parking lot at the stadium. And we had Cisco delivered trailers to us that we used for refrigerators. We took all those donations and we did a fresh farmer's market three days a week up there with the shelf-stable foods. So people would drive through. They'd pop their trunk the minute they hit the parking lot. We'd put a shelf-stable box in, and they'd drive down a line of fresh foods. And we'd had volunteers there that were socially distancing six feet apart at pallets of fresh lettuce, tomatoes, dairy, eggs. You name it, we had it. And we put those, those things in their cars to help them get through. 
the, one of the things when when you talk about the reintegration of of our military, which is the 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 bridge you cross between your military service and and trying to adjust back to civilian life, you had to do that yourself coming out of the Marine Corps. And so when you talk about that reintegration, it's the same adjustment that our military has to make when they reintegrate from home after a deployment, that adjustment and change in lifestyle. And what I always talk to people about is the skill sets that your military service and deployments teach you. While you may have to learn to reintegrate back into civilian life, those skill sets can be tweaked and used. And so when you talk about your experience at Sheridan and you talk about um, your expertise in food and distribution, the skill sets you learned in the Marine Corps when it comes to overcoming an insurmountable odd and finding a way over the wall at all costs, those skill sets come from the military and just need to be tweaked in order for you to find success in other ways. And it's an important message when you're talking about hiring and you're talking about employment with our veterans community is that all of those things are not just exclusive life skills that can be used in military service alone. If you weren't a Marine, would you have been able to attack this problem the way that you're attacking it? The argument could be made no, and that those skills, you're now putting those to work in conjunction with the job skills you had in the private sector to make this program what it is. I bring it up because I want to talk about why it is that our veterans community is being so adversely affected in this time of COVID. When I came down to visit you and present you that check, you were telling me staggering numbers about the number of veterans that were being laid off, especially older veterans that were in need of food assistance. And as the world changes and layoffs continue and hiring changes, I always want to remind people that hiring veterans makes your business better because they are going to attack problems in a different way because of the skill sets they have acquired in their military service. So can you talk about why it is that when everyone is suffering in COVID, why it is that our veterans are suffering in a different way? Why are they being laid off? What, what is going on? I would say that the, the biggest problem is that the percentage of older veterans that we have that have either served a career in the military or left the military and gone into the private sector uh, you know, it was World War II, and it was Korea, and it was Vietnam. And they're in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s now. The older veterans from World War II are pretty well established in where their lifestyle is. The veterans from Korea and Vietnam have either become very dependent on spousal income or investments. And both of those things have been affected drastically by covid the spousal income is what broke the system. If you're a veteran and you served in Vietnam and your wife had a job and you were living off your pension and, and what, you, what you did while you were in the service, and that spousal income gets cut off because of COVID, you can't make it. And that's what we're seeing with our veterans. The other problem is 
and I, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but this was a, this was a way for corporations to cleanse themselves. They found out that they had somebody that's worked for them for 20 years. They could lay them down, lay them off because of COVID. We don't have enough business. So they cut back on their labor force. As their business came back and things opened up, they didn't bring the older veterans back because they were making 18 19 $20 an hour. They brought in the younger kids at $13 an hour. They're not getting three weeks vacation. They're getting one. They don't have 15 sick days. They're getting six. They don't have pension. They don't have overhead. And they use the excuse of COVID and lack of business to keep from bringing those people back and cleansing the corporation and making their, their overhead and their operating expenses. This world has changed so dramatically since March 15th. I remember sitting uh, the day that, Governor Baker made the announcement as what, what he was going to do about closing the state down. It was a Sunday afternoon. We had just done our last fundraising event. And let me tell you, if we hadn't done that fundraising event that day and carried it off, there would have been $70,000 that we wouldn't have had to go attack this problem. And when the event was over, I took my wife and we stopped on the way home and we got a pizza. We were sitting in a place. He had his news conference and it was up on the TV. And when he made the announcement, I looked at my wife and I said, this world is about to change like we never expected. And I, I don't think she believed me. And as this has gone on, we've seen things happen to people that we know, people that volunteer for us, people that we have that where they've had to make tremendous adjustments. And the, the people that are, that are hurting in this country are people who have, have given and that's why we do what we do. I, I, you know, people say, talk about what you've done. I haven't done anything. I've helped people who are in need. And that's where this has all stayed on the tracks and gone down the road. Because if you look at what, what was accomplished in Foxborough through what we did for Food for Vets, and you look at what's accomplished even today as we start to open up again and we start to get back into a successful time, those are the people that need to be taken care of. It's it's a staggering problem, and the way that you've attacked it is very strategic and military-oriented. I want to talk about the logistics of organizing volunteers, and specifically, when I came and visited you at that uh, box-packing facility next to Gillette Stadium, I was in awe at the system in place. So... Bring me from the loading dock with the companies donating the food. They back into your loading dock. You unload all of this food. And then how does the chain go from that to being a box of food put in the trunk of a veteran in need of food assistance? Run me through that whole line. We had, uh, I believe it was 37 different items that we packed in each box. Each item had a value of calories, carbohydrates, protein, and was was uh, separated when it came into the warehouse into a section. When it was in the warehouse and it was in that section, as we built our line each day to pack boxes, we would pull, we knew that we needed juices, we knew that we needed tuna fish, we knew we needed chicken, we knew the nutritional value and how many of those items had to go into the box. We made it so goof-proof. We had so many volunteers there. <laughs> we painted numbers on the floor so that everybody knew that you got four cans of this soup and two cans of this tomato sauce and two pounds of this uh, pasta. 
and a box of cereal and, you know, two juices and a uh, shelf-stable milk. So we had all of that stuff in a line, and we replenished. And as the donations came in, we were able to take and substitute for the things that we couldn't get to make those values work. One of the things that you always accept is financial donations, obviously. One of the other things that you accept is volunteers. Yes. So when someone that hears this podcast and says, you know what, I've got a free afternoon. The kids are in school on Thursdays now. I'm home with them the rest of the week. I'd like to go and donate some time. Talk to me about the process of bringing someone in and then what it is that they would be doing, how that line works and these boxes get packed by these volunteers. It's, it's real simple. The, the volunteers go to our website. They sign up. They fill out a form. They pick the www.mmsfi.org. Yes. And uh, it's Mass Military Support Foundation. They, uh, they fill out a form and that they register to come in and, and volunteer when they're available. We have people who work uh, a volunteer on weekends, giving out boxes. We have people who volunteer during the weekdays, packing boxes. And we even have some people who volunteer at night coming in to do some of the maintenance work that we need to set up the lines. Um, once people come in and, and, and register, to, we, we train them in the specific tasks that they're going to do on a given day. And uh, the task is real simple. As I said, we made it goof-proof. We put the items on the line for them. All they have to do, it's like shopping in a supermarket. You saw the carts. We put four boxes on a cart, and you're going to fill four boxes each time you walk through the line. And each box gets four cans of soup, two cans of tomato sauce, whatever it is that we're putting in that day. And it goes to the end of the line. We put some uh, collateral material in there to tell them about our programs, and if they need further assistance, where to register, how to get in touch with us. And the box is then sealed, put on a pallet. The pallet is put aside, and it gets sent out to one of the distribution points. We have uh, a, col uh, a collaborative of other nonprofits that work with us all over the state, and they set up the daily distributions that we do from Pittsfield to Provincetown. Uh, we were in Haverhill yesterday. The uh, veterans organization up there VNOC. did uh, their thousandth box. So we went up there, and as the people lined up to come through the line, it was the fifth car, and we put the thousandth box of shelf-stable food in the car, and we took a picture of the, the woman that was driving it. And, uh, you know, so it, it happens because of that collaboration that we have. There's, there's a tremendous amount of nonprofits out there and we're like the, the hub of the collaborating force that pulls those nonprofits together because we built the network on collaboration, and that network is what gets us the distribution to get things out, whether it's food, coats for vets, uh, Christmas gifts for kids in need, backpacks to put kids back into school when they go to school, uh, or whatever that the, the emergency is that comes up, that's how we've been able to be so successful. If you go onto your website right now, which is mmsfi.org or Massachusetts Military Support Foundation, um, there is a list of places, distribution sites for the vital food kits. 
I'll run down some of the locations quickly because it, it leads into my next question. So Agawam, Buzzards Bay, the Cape Cod Community College, Danvers, Devon's Empowerment Center, Foxborough, Haverhill, Manchester by the Sea, Sandwich, West Springfield, and Worcester. Those are the uh, vital food kit um, places right now. So if you are in need of food assistance and you're a veteran, which is the number one criteria, explain to me how it is that you qualify and then how it is that you... Go on that link and there's a thing that says click here. Yep. That'll take you to a form that you fill out. And that form has the ability for you to upload a copy of your DD-214, a copy of your license, or a copy of your veteran's ID retired card. That's all you have to upload. Fill out that form, submit it, and you'll print out a, a, a receipt that you'll bring to the food distribution. You pull up, open your trunk or your back seat, whatever you want, so that we're COVID compliant. And you hand the receipt to the person at the head of the line. You put your box in your car. If we have a farmer's market that, at that location, you can drive down a line and tell people what you want in fresh food. And uh, off you go home, and you're all set. And the food that you receive, like you said before, the food kits are built to supply three meals a day for two people for two weeks. Correct. And so I think it's really important when, you know, everybody that's in the war room, we meet every Tuesday nights at 830. Like I said, um, we call ourselves the war room family and there's chat groups and, you know, they've organized on Facebook. One of the things that everyone really had pride about was knowing that that the money when I handed it to you was literally putting food in the trunk of veterans so explain to me how it is that you manage financial donations food donations because there have been so many times that organizations have been investigated and found out that the money wasn't going to where they thought and one of the reasons why I wanted to come down and see you in Foxborough that day and to hand you the check in person was, one, to get out of the house, <laughs> two, to hand you the check in person because I wanted to take the picture with you and actually meet the person I had been corresponding with. But the other thing is I wanted to see it. I wanted to put my own eyes on it so that when I tell people we're raising money for this organization and this is legit, there's a lot of pressure and transparency in making sure that people understand that your organization is doing exactly what you say. How do you, how do you navigate that and make sure that companies and organizations know you're doing it the right way? Because unfortunately, there are some that have proven to not be so transparent. We, through the verification process that we just talked about, have a list of everybody who's gotten a box from us. Anybody who isn't on the list for that distribution that's gotten a box in another way, whether they're 115 funds in Massachusetts or through, uh, we just did last weekend, the VFW. They registered all their members across the state that needed food assistance, and we passed out 600 boxes of food last week. But we have the names of those people. So we have, you can tie back into our donations and our distribution one for one for where we come. We have very little waste. Our waste is in our live food, so we don't have a lot that we throw away. Uh, our expenses are black and white. We have drivers. Some of our drivers we have to employ and pay. A lot of our drivers are volunteers. 
the ones that we have to pay an employer on a payroll service. So we have the, the receipts for the, the services. We only have four paid employees in the entire organization. And that is because we try and get as much money that's donated to us to the bottom line. Our books are audited by an accounting firm. We file a 990 every year with the IRS, which says where every dime goes. And we don't accept cash to speak of. I mean, some people will hand us a $20 bill in line, and that person has to hand it to the next person who has to <laughs> give it to the next person who has to fill out a receipt and give it to somebody else. And then Donna Baldwin, who controls all of our finances, she's the treasurer for Mass in Cape Cod. Uh, she reconciles it with her team of volunteers and in the QuickBooks it goes. And <laughs> I guess at the end of the year, the auditors asked me probably an hour's worth of questions as to why I ordered this or who received that or this, that, and the other thing. And when the audit's done, we go on to next year. Um, I want to go through the hierarchy because we're using a lot of, we're using a lot of organizations like the food for vets program and the Massachusetts Military Support Foundation and Cape Cod and whatever. So I know you do a lot of partnerships, like you talked about with the home base program, but go through the hierarchy for me well, of, of what name is on the top, who reports where, and what's going on. Because I know when people listen to this, they're going to want to get involved. Right. Uh, I'll talk about Cape Cod first because that was the first one in 2013. I had the privilege of becoming the president of a non, not-for-profit that had been established in ni- 1947. It was the oldest military support group on the Cape. It had lived for years off of the receipts from the air show at Otis Air Force Base. And it was a group of individuals who, in their right frame of mind, did everything they could to make sure that the military families and veterans on the Cape were taken care of. When the fighter jets were transferred from Otis to Bonds and the air shows went away, that organization had money in the bank that had funded scholarships and Christmas parties and everything else that they did to support veterans and military families on the Cape. And in 2013, the jets were gone, I believe, five years or six years I found myself having to write checks for scholarships that were unfunded, and we decided to start a nonprofit that was a 501c3 that could legitimately go out and raise money and give people receipts for their donations, and that's how Cape Cod started. And Cape Cod took the programs that were laid out from 1947 through the t- 2013, funded them, and ran their uh, programs for four years, very successfully. In 2017, we were asked to expand those programs across the state, and Massachusetts Military was born. When it was born, I reached out to five or six other organizations that I had worked with over the years and asked them to be part of Mass Military. Uh, we got together, formed a collaboration, and decided that we'd take all the programs on the Cape spread them out across the state to all the bases and all the veterans organizations. And from 2017 to 2018, we were in an uh, uh, expansion mode, opening up empowerment centers and doing what we did with the, the, the organization. And in 2019, as I told you, when the government shutdown hit, we were built to be able to serve those people. We carried on through the remainder of 19. 
And when we got to 20, all hell broke loose in March. And luckily, those organizations all banded together. How does the hierarchy work? We all work together. We all try and help each other. We all try and assist each other with whatever it was we need. If you look at some of the forms that you fill out when you go to our website, they're designed by our collaborating partner. If you look at the process we go through, another partner handles that. So it was a united effort. And the reason that we had to form USA, which now services all of New England, is because I think it was Bob Kraft that told me a year ago when we did 15,000 backpacks for school kids with the New England Patriots, not the Massachusetts Patriots. So next time you come back here, be ready to be the New England Military Support <laughs> Foundation. Mr. Kraft, I wasn't going to pay another lawyer to start another corporation, so I just went for the whole enchilada, and I started USA for Vets, which has a national presence now. We aren't in 50 states yet, but we are in all the New England states and eastern New York. He is such a huge presence in the league. There, you know, if you, it doesn't matter where you go. If you ask someone to name an owner of a football team, or they're going to say Jerry Jones and most likely Robert Kraft. He, he's a huge presence. He's incredibly successful. The legacy that he has built here with the Patriots is huge. Can you talk to me about what it's like to just sit down with him and what kind of a person he is? Because when I came to see your facility and you told me that the Crafts donated 150,000 square feet of warehouse space to you and that they gave you those cardboard boxes and I mean, he's running the Patriots. He's running these companies. Talk to me about what it's like to have that kind of personal interaction with somebody like that and, and how important partnerships like that have been for you. I met the Patriots. I got involved with the Patriots. I think it was 2016. We had a fire on the Cape. Our building burnt down 30 days before Christmas and all the gifts we had collected and wrapped and had everything ready for Christmas were burnt in the fire. And one of the first calls I got after the fire was from a woman by the name of Donis Bigarello, who was their community service person, and she offered any assistance she could provide to help, as did everybody in New England. You know, it was a devastating time for us, and it was a gut punch that I don't ever want to see anybody experience again. But in 30 days, we pulled off a party for 800 kids, and we had nothing to start on day one. And after that experience with the Patriots, they had a toy drive in December right before our party where they donated toys to us to help fill the need for those 800 children. Somewhere right after that, I got a call, and it was uh, we, was start, we had a Coats for Vet program going in January and February. We were giving out boots, socks, hats, scarves, gloves, and coats to homeless veterans across the state. And Donna heard about it. She called me up and she goes, uh, I'd like to, the Patriots would like to donate a number of uh, coats to you for homeless veterans. So uh, I received a, a call from them to come up. I went up to the Gillette, pulled up to the loading dock, and they put 200 homeless coats in the back of a truck and asked me to distribute them for them across Massachusetts. And ever since that, he's been a key part of our Coats for Vet program. Doesn't want anybody to know about it, doesn't advertise it, doesn't say anything. But every year I know I can count on him for 200 homeless coats, which are sleeping bag coats, 
homeless veterans can pull the bag out of the back of the coat, put it on their legs, and they can sleep out in the outdoors and, and, and be safe and warm in the wintertime. That expanded the program with Ocean State Job Lot, who does a buy one, get one coat in their stores every November over Veterans Day. They start it. They run it for 30 days. And we give out 30,000 winter jackets across New England to veterans in need. And uh, how Mr. Kraft all falls back into this, he's always there whenever you call and ask for help. We did a, a backpack program for seven years where we gave out backpacks to kids on the Cape going back to school. When we became mass military, holy mackerel, Andy, we need 15,000 backpacks to solve the need now. And we didn't have a place to do it. We called the crafts. They offered up the field house. We were there for two days. We packed 15,000 bags and uh, distributed them from Gillette Stadium. And if we hadn't had COVID this year, it would have been 30,000 bags because it just keeps growing. One thing about us, you ask how our transparency is. Our transparency is very easy. Our numbers never go down. And what we get, we hand out. We, uh, we started with 800 kids on the Cape, or 300 kids on the Cape that grew to 800. And the 800 kids in the Cape grew to 14,000 kids across the state active duty, military, and Coast Guard families. And then the next year it was 26,000 with the Gold Star families and the other families that we included in it. So our numbers just continue to go up every year. And uh, every time that we have a need, the first call we make is to the six-time world champion, the England <laughs> Patriots, and they answer the bell for us every time. It's a good phone number to have. Yeah, it is. Um, we talked about food for vets. You touched on um, home for vets. I, I mean, uh, coats for vets. Coats for vets. But if you go on your website, there is a list of your programs. So I'm just going to start naming them. And I just want you to tell me a little bit about the program and about some of the different things that you do. Uh, Safe Home for Vets. Safe Home for Vets is something that we started with the uh, active duty families on the Cape. Uh, there was a number of people during deployments that would come back and were injured. And when they were injured, they, they had disability needs. So some of those disability needs involved ramps, door, wider doorways, uh, making people, making homes accessible. And it was a very little small program that we started five years ago, quietly. You'll never find any fanfare about us. We don't do, as I call them, the prisoner of war pictures, where you see us giving something and having somebody have to stand there and thank us for it. We do it quietly, we do it with dignity, and we do it with, with respect. That program grew into a national program that we're awaiting uh, a grant from HUD right now to be the uh, exclusive uh, contractor for New England to make home modifications for veterans who are in need. It's so shocking, I think, for people to, they think if you get injured in service, you know, if you uh, lose a leg to an IED attack or something, most people would just assume incorrectly that when you come home, the military would outfit your house with ramps and, and the equipment to get you in and out of bed or in and out of the shower or whatever. And that is not the case at all. These are all the same thing with, um, I think people were shocked with, you know, the, the marathon bombing victims that I think a lot of people learned how expensive it is to be an amputee after the marathon. 
because you find out how expensive the limbs and the prosthetics are and the home modifications and insurances and, and veterans benefits. It doesn't cover those kinds of things that completely alter the quality of the life, even in your own home. And if you're not prepared financially, anybody that's done any kind of home modifications while you've been locked in the house through COVID knows that it's a lot of time, it's a lot of expertise, and it's a lot of money. Yes, it's, a, it's, it's an incredible expense, and it's, it's an unfair expense because a lot of people, when they come home, they get the, the services because of their veterans' status. A lot of people have injuries that five years after the fact are affecting them and their veteran status. Now they're in that, I call it no man's land, where you got to go fight with the VA because when you came out, oh, I had a bump. Well, that bump is now, you know, something that's going to disable you. And now you now you, now it's a, an all-out negotiation war to, to get the services and the, and the financial remuneration that you need to take care of it. Uh, talk to me about jobs for vets because we touched on it yeah, earlier jobs. about the reintegration and hiring of veterans. It, it's uh, probably one of the greatest programs that we get involved with because we actually get to help veterans. Uh, the integration program brings homeless veterans back into the work community through our corporate partners. What we do is we have a, a couple of counselors that go out and they find veterans that are in need of jobs. They work with them to develop skills necessary to interview and train to get into a job. And then they work with them for a year after they're placed to make sure that they're able to stay and maintain the job with the stresses of whatever they've experienced while they're in the service. In addition to that, we also take and work with people who are transitioning from active duty to civilian life through our corporate partners again. We have a number of people who call us, ask us if uh, we could help with a job search. They, they, they're getting down off of active duty after 25 years, and they'd like to go into the private sector. So that's how the Jobs for Vets works. I mean, the, the list is unbelievable, the things that you're doing. Um, we talked about Coats for Vets um, and how you're getting all those partnerships with Ocean State Job Lot and the crafts. And you talked about Operation Backpack of packing these backpacks for kids to go back to school. The holidays are going to be weird this year because um, families aren't going to be able to get together. Financially, people have been burdened in a way they weren't prepared for um, because of layoffs and the, the country just not being open for business the way that it was. Yet kids still have this dream about Santa and the magic of the holidays and without families being able to get together and the big family meals maybe not possible this year. Um, how is Operation Santa going to attack this kind of problem this year with you? We have uh, a changed... Our, our prior history was that we would do huge Christmas parties. It was a day where... All the families could get together, build their camaraderie together as, as units that work together on bases. Veterans groups could get together and would give out gifts to the kids, would have food available, pizza, soda, ice cream, uh, face painters, pony rides, uh, balloon sculptors, Mr. and Mrs. Claus, elves giving out gifts. 
And it was probably my favorite day of the year across the state from the end of November till the 20th of December because we'd do 15 to 20 parties. Because of COVID this year, the uh, toy drives are going to be a lot harder to do. I'm, I'm going to say that I'm going to go out on a limb and say that we're going to figure out a way to make it happen between our sponsors and ourselves. We'll probably end up doing uh, very similar to what we do with the food for vet boxes. Santa, Santa is going to be a drive-through, a drive-by, whatever we decide to do this year. Uh, we had Blue Cross Blue Shield in two weeks ago. They sent people down to our warehouse at the Cape. Nowhere near the numbers we did in the past, but they wrap gifts for the day to make sure that we have wrap gifts for some of the underprivileged families that need assistance over the holidays. So we're, we're working on that as we always have. And it's a, it's a work in progress. If you could tell me what's going to happen in four weeks, I could tell you exactly how we're going to do it. We're on the fly. And I, I think Barbara and Paul and all of our staff are just trying to make sure that the kids have a proper Christmas this year. It, it's an amazing thing to watch. And when you build a business, you know, you, you put these plans in place, you've had to build a business that doesn't really rely on its plans because you've got all of these different arms of what you do and you're constantly zigging and zagging based on the needs of the veterans community and their families. And you're doing it in a time where everyone can relate. Like you said, if you could tell me what's going to happen in four weeks, I'll tell you how we're going to do it. Can you talk to me about how it makes you feel to be surrounded by such selfless people that help make this vision happen? Talk about what the volunteers mean to you. Talk about what the generosity of the donors means to you. And I don't just mean the crafts. I mean the people that just click on your website and make a financial donation uh, the companies that are donating food. And for anybody that was in the war room and bought those T-shirts that turned into that donation that I gave you, talk to me about experiencing that level of selflessness. It, uh, it's hard to explain. Uh, one of the greatest gifts I get out of what I do is I have the ability to see the end result. I see that kid that has a smile on their face. I see that veteran that's choked up and ready to cry. I see the wife that can't give me enough gratitude between pre-COVID hugs and, and, and today air hugs, as we call them. I see that gold star mother that'll never live another day the way she lived before the death of her child. I see... Uh, veteran families who are in need. And I see the ability to be able to assist those people and do it in a way where they get what they deserve and do it with some dignity and respect. I keep coming back to dignity and respect. I, I, I really believe that's why we all do what we do. Um, I think that the donors that we have, be it the person who sends a check in for $5, or the corporation that writes a check for $50,000. And that's the gamut. I mean, that's what we live with. And there's a there's a, a joke between Donna and I that, you know, how much is this program going to cost? I said, well, how many people are we going to serve? We don't know when we start a program. 
And none of our programs, as I said to you earlier, ever go down. We always find another person that needs another hand up. And it's a hand up. It's not a hand out. And that's the most gratifying thing. And I think the, the reason that we've been able to attract the quality and caliber of partners that we have, corporate and, and you know, everyday citizens, is because they see the work that we do and they understand how we do it and they're glad to be part of it. And like you, it was, uh, you you chased me down because I was going 100 miles an hour <laughs> with my hair on fire. I think when you were trying to donate money, I, I think it was shelf-stable milk that we couldn't find and there was no dairy in the market to be able to put into the boxes. And it took you a couple of days to get connected to me. I think it was Max Lane that, had a common yeah, we, and I had known some people that had come down and volunteered right. too, so I was able to track down some contact information. I can be very persistent yep. on. And and Max called me up and he's like, "Will you just please call her, get her off my back? I got I told her I'd get to you." I love Max. And I uh, I called you and then we talked and, you know, when you came down to the warehouse, we were just catching our breath. That was when we were going from phase one to phase two. Barbara was in just June, coming I think. in. Yeah. yeah. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, the volunteers, I mean, that's the lifeblood of our organization. I mean, Paul is a, a classic example. He can tell you. He he walked in the door at the Cape to uh, get a box of food during the pandemic because it was two weeks worth of food, and he didn't have to go to a supermarket. And the next thing he knows, he's... What does classic mean, old? Well, <laughs> no, I mean... Okay. okay. Classic means uh, typical. I think typical is the word I'd use. Um, if I could uh, just say a couple of things, um, might you tell the story of what's happening um, this weekend that you're going to be going to? Well, this podcast will come out afterwards. But it's a cute story. Okay. Well, so, so tell me the story about last weekend because that's wedding. Yeah. That's uh, when that's when the podcast will be out. So. Okay. Uh, last weekend. We had a uh, wedding at Foxborough. Two people met in the distribution line of the food boxes in March, uh, started dating, and they're getting married on Saturday. And their wedding is going to be at the food box distribution last no Saturday. No way! Yes. So we have a, an expression of that where the people who did that distribution, their, their motto is, we were strangers and now we're family. And we're all connected on Facebook through the Facebook Messenger, I think. I, I, uh, I think that's what it is. And it, we send messages back and forth to each other. But that's, uh, that's, that's just a classic example of what, what's come about from this whole pandemic that we've been able to help people with. And finding those bits of joy and reasons to celebrate is so important. One of the things that we talk about a lot in the war room um, is the the toll that it's taking on people's mental health that if you lose a loved one whether it be covid related or not the inability to be able to grieve and mourn properly um because having funerals and wakes and being able to spend time with people when they're sick in the hospital has been made almost impossible the isolation the time away from kids and their friends and the ability to go out and interact and I think for 
a lot of people that have been stuck in their homes working, I can kind of sympathize to it. I spend a lot of hours here in MCHQ just editing by myself and, uh, you know, was so used to for so long having an overly social job that when you find those reasons to celebrate and you talk about those moments of seeing the smile on the kids with the backpacks or the veterans, how grateful they are to pick up that food, there's such a, re- a need for all of us to feel connected and to still feel like we're part of something bigger. And that's what one of the things that I love about your organization is that you're giving people the ability to get involved in a way that's safe and responsible. And you're really moving the needle when it comes to the need to the point where you're now a dating service. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, in a, in a lot of cases, those people may not have known each other beginning in March, but we have these opportunities for groups of employees to come in and volunteer, and they're all working remotely. They haven't spent time with one another. They're not allowed to be together in the office. So to come and spend an afternoon wrapping Christmas gifts or packing food boxes is a great way for groups of employees to come together and support the effort, but also to see one another in COVID, you know, COVID compliant, compliant, um, but to be together and to really work toward a common goal. And we have a lot of opportunities for companies to get involved with us that way. It's like, that's a great idea. If, if you've got a company where everyone is working remotely to organize a, a volunteer day and get all of the employees together and bring them down there and get everybody doing something that's going to make them feel absolutely great that they're contributing. And like you said, to be able to have that compliant interaction and to be social again because we're all with one another. Absolutely. Yeah, we're all craving that interaction and, and being part of a team. But also as the weather gets colder and as we're not able to be outside in the way that we have been in the exercise and as the pressures of the holiday season come, I think the need to be able to donate, contribute, be part of these things is only going to get more and more important. And the fact that you have 150,000 square feet of space to be able to make these things happen means that you have the space to be able to incorporate all of these people to come down. Well, not only that, but the other thing that we're looking at going forward is, you know, this has gone through phases. We had phase one from March until May, phase two from May until July, phase three kicked in in August. And now we're entering phase four with a, I think this pandemic is going to rear its ugly head again. And we've been told to prepare for January and maybe run as late as June. So what we're trying to do to make things more efficient is the 150,000 square foot warehouse was good to get us up and running. But now we're trying to get back into a regional type thing where we've got warehouses that are 10 to 15,000 square feet where you're doing the state of Rhode Island in Rhode Island and you're doing the state of Connecticut in Connecticut. I have made a third world country rich with the amount of fuel I've bought since March, believe me. The trucks and the compressors and the refrigeration that we've had to buy fuel for is just astronomical, and it's not sustainable. It's like the $50 gift cards. We've we've done our mission. Now it's time to to tighten up and we're, we're going to go to a regional concept. So I think you'll see as uh, the winter comes and, and, and we go 
further into this pandemic. I think you'll see a warehouse in Rhode Island that will be able to answer the needs and volunteer needs of Rhode Island residents. I think you'll see one on the Cape. I think you'll see one in Boston. There'll be one on the North Shore, and there'll be one in Springfield. And I think there might be one in the Worcester area. So that will cover the network that we have in place as we uh, open up in Connecticut and New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine. There'll be facilities very similar to what Foxborough was, but smaller in size because, as I said, the, the fuel costs are just prohibitive. So it's a lot easier to have a packing facility that can distribute that way to the state rather than one big facility in Foxborough. And you got to run three and a half hours out to Agawam right. with a truck or three and a half hours back at seven miles to the gallon in a tractor trailer or 11 miles to the gallon in a box truck. So that's where we're trying to become more efficient now because I don't see this going away before the first of the year. And I don't see it being totally solved before June. So we've got to tighten up and figure out how to make this more efficient. And as we do that, we'll get through it together like we have since March. Well, I just think that what you're doing is remarkable. I think you're an amazing person. I was honored to contribute in the small way we were able to. And when I talked to you about coming on the podcast and talking about where you spent the money we gave you, uh, that was just one component of it. But I wanted to be able to share your story and what it is that you're doing with people that either need your services or people that would like to volunteer to help your mission or if they're able to be able to donate financially to be able to move that mission forward. And I think people hearing this, when they go to the website and they see all of the things that they can get involved in and all of the different ways they can contribute and to really get the word out to our veterans community that these resources are there for them. And I think it's really hard, like you talked about earlier, to have veterans understand that this is not a charity case, that you are not less than, that you did not fail and that's why you may be in need of these resources. And one of the lessons that I learned from my trips overseas is I always told the guys I was embedded with that you've got my back here. You're protecting me here in Afghanistan or in Iraq, and you're going to make sure I get home safely. In order for me to pay you back, I'm going to do that very same thing for you at home. And when you're dealing with a population of 3% veteran and 97% civilian, there's so many civilians grateful for your service. And this is how we are showing you that we are grateful for your service. Please allow us to thank you in the only way that we can, in the only way that we know how, and that is to volunteer for an organization like yours or to be able to financially contribute to it this is our way of contributing. You've already done your contribution. Do you look at it that way? Yes, I do. I always say that you raised your right hand to make our lives better. We can put our right hand out to you to make your life better. And I, I just want to say thank you to all the volunteers that we have. Many of them are veterans. We have a lot of very successful veterans who want to give back that don't need assistance, that come and volunteer for us. 
And the, the greatest experience in the world, and I think you probably felt this, was when you're volunteering and you're next to a veteran and you have no idea. And then all of a sudden you find out that that person has served and they're there to help their brothers and sisters. And I, I, I just can't thank the volunteers and our partners. I mean, without our partners, none of this happens. Whether it's the, the, the local newspaper store that helps us, that sends a donation at Christmas time to the New England Patriots that helps with whatever time we call. I mean, we're blessed to have the people we have supporting us, and I, I thank everybody out there for what they do. I thank them too, but I invite more to join us. Yeah, the doors are open. Yep, for volunteers, for in-kind donations, for financial support. We really do need it all. The, the need is not going away, so we are, we're asking for help too. I'm going to put the link to your organization in the description of this podcast so that if somebody is listening to it while they're on the treadmill or they're driving in the car or whatever, uh, we'll make it really easy for you um, to be able to just go into the description of the podcast and click the link. This is a rock lifestyle podcast, and we always try to bring things back to music any way we can. Uh, one of the things I like to do is make a corresponding playlist that goes along with every podcast episode. So when you're packing food boxes in the warehouse, what are we listening to? It depends on the group. When I go, I, uh, I go many mornings early to set up, uh, see what came in and see what has to be going on the line. And uh, I'm big into the, uh, the bagpipe music when I'm there by myself because it kind of motivates me and gets me going. I don't know that that's going to motivate everybody, but <laughs> I think a lot of times it's 70s and 80s rock. Yeah. That's what I remember from it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, a lot of classic rock in there, yeah. mm -hmm. packing some boxes to some Led Zeppelin and yeah. ACDC. That'll motivate you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't thank you guys enough for coming and hanging out with me today. Um, it's so nice to actually have people here in MCHQ. Um, I'm so grateful for your mission and all of the work that you're doing. And if, um, you know, we can all band together, people that meet me in the war room or people that listen to this podcast and try to help you out any way we can, I, I think that now is the time to try and find a way. And, you know, be creative. If you don't have the money but you have the time, donate your time. Yeah, and I can't thank you enough. I mean, you have no idea how expensive it is to run this program and the effort that you made to make that donation and what you did was just incredible and i from the bottom of my heart i thank you for all the veterans oh, thank you it's my thank pleasure you. my who drove honor. through that line and said thank you to us well that's i will take those thank yous and uh um you know it just like i said we were just looking for a way to try and help in the only way we could and I know that we're going to be able to do more of it in the future, and I look forward to that. Well, I thank you again. Thank you. All right, I think we're good. Okay, there they are. Don Cox, Barbara Foley, and Paul Rifkin from the Massachusetts Military Support Foundation and USA for Vets. And I got to thank everybody that bought one of the Cocktails in the War Room shirts earlier this year to help us raise over $5,600 that we were able to donate. And now you know where the money went and how it was spent. And you also know how you can get involved. 
So in the description of this podcast, the link for the Massachusetts Military Support Foundation is there and the links to their social media pages as well. And hopefully you're going to be able to donate your time and volunteer or donate some resources or make a financial contribution to help them with their mission through the holidays. There is also a corresponding playlist with some of that bagpipe music that Don was talking about. Don't forget, every Tuesday night, join us for Cocktails in the War Room. 8.30 p.m. every Tuesday night. Go to facebook.com slash mistresscarrywaf. Thanks once again to Latini Creative Solutions at latinicreative.com and the Main Hair Lounge at mainhairlounge.com for sponsoring this week's episode. And don't forget to click subscribe and leave us a comment and a review.